welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I'll be your host alongside James Fox, senior writer at Future Sox. Today, we have a special guest from 2080 Baseball, Burke Granger. You can follow him on Twitter at Burke Granger. That's Burke with an E. He typically hangs around the Midwest covering Division One baseball and the Major League Baseball draft for, like I said, 2080 Baseball. You can follow 2080 Baseball at 2080 ball on Twitter. Burke, thanks so much for joining us today. We wanted to touch base with you because we're about a week away from the Major League Baseball draft. Uh, it's so unique. The first time really in its history that we, we've seen it under these circumstances. So let's start there. First, hope you're doing well, of course. But w- when it relates to this draft and what we can look forward to in a five-round setting, what are your general thoughts when it, when it came out and now that we're about a week away where do you stand and, and who do you believe benefits the most? Uh, yeah. Well, for, first, thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, the, the five-round draft going down from from 40 rounds was really a, a tough pill to swallow. Not only that, but then the, the $20,000 cap on uh, undrafted free agents as opposed to that being, uh, you know, $125,000. Um, so I, I think we're going to see the, the impacts of that is that we're going to see a lot of good high school talent make it to college. So one of my jobs is, is I, I report on the Midwest for D one baseball.com. So I'm going to see a lot more talent at the college level, Uh, but there's going to be kind of that, that uh, crunch of playing time that players are going to have to compete for because there's going to be less people leaving for the draft, less people leaving to go play pro ball uh, seniors get another year of eligibility, um, college juniors, if they weren't going to be drafted, if they weren't a top five round talent will likely be sticking around, uh, rather than being persuaded to, to go play pro ball for $20,000. So, um, it's going to be weird. I, I think for the next three or four years, we're going to see some of the best talent at the collegiate ranks that we've seen ever. Um, what it means for this draft in particular, this was already a, a deep draft. So going into the last couple of years, I, you know, I'd been following this class kind of tangentially uh, as I'm scouting, you know, the 2019, 2018 classes, you're seeing how good this 2020 class was going to be. So I was looking forward to it. Uh, the, the depth in the class, both, uh, both the star power up front and the depth of the class were appealing so when you only are going to have 160 players drafted, that's kind of a gut punch because there's a lot of good players that aren't going to get drafted. Um, and again, that'll be fine because they're going to make it to college. But, um, you know, you want to see these guys get into pro ball. You want to see see what you got there. There's a lot of good stories that come out of players after the fifth round. Uh, I always enjoy seeing the guys picked in the 10th round, 10th um, and beyond on, on day three where – uh, guys that you thought were going to college get $125,000 on day three and make it into a pro system um, where a team like like the White Sox or any other team might have a deal with a player and get them into a pro system uh, after that, that third day. Uh, that's really an advantage that teams aren't going to have this year. Everyone's kind of have a, has a level playing field five picks. And I think what you're going to see is this year, we're going to find out who's, who's risk averse and who's risk tolerant. 
what the risk tolerance is for each of these clubs. Um, you know, it's easy for a guy like me to say, I want to pick on upside, you know, because my job doesn't depend on it. If my job depended on it as a scouting director, as a GM, I might be a little more risk averse. My risk tolerance might be a little lower and I might take that uh, perception of safety of a college guy that I've, I've, I've scouted for three years. So that, that's my long winded answer of saying, um, taking this down from 40 rounds to, to five rounds has a lot of ripples, a lot of ripples in the effect. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you that I think, I mean, I think the most interesting thing is going to just be to see how teams like how they, what they do strategically. Cause even the white Sox last year, you know, took Vaughn, um, $7 million bonus, like full slot value. Then they went over slot with high school pitchers twice. Um, and then they drafted college seniors in rounds five through 10. And, you mm-hmm. know, the Mets did something similar and that's just not going to be possible this year. So, um, so I guess like going into what I had for you next, like what are the strengths and weaknesses of this particular draft class? So the, the big strength is right-handed pitching. That's the one that pops out when I'm, I'm working on our rankings right now and write-ups and, you know, I'm writing up guys in the thirties and forties that, that I feel like could have been first rounders back into the first rounders last year in terms of right-handed pitching, both at the high school uh, and the collegiate level. Um, if, the, if there's a weakness, it's probably shortstop, maybe at the at the high school or the collegiate level. Um, you know, last year we had star power up front with Bobby Witt Jr. and uh, C.J. Abrams. Um, this year, I think, you know, Ed Howard's the, the first true shortstop, the, and he'll be ranked in a lot of publications, you know, in the 15 to 20 range. Um, unsure where he'll be drafted. But, you know, he's a great player. But but in terms of that, the depth at the position, I'd, I'd say there's a little less this year than in the past. There, there will be some college guys coming off the board. Uh, you know, Nick Lofton, uh, Alika Williams coming off a little later. So, yeah, I mean, there, there are there are good players. There's some more depth at that position later on, but there, it lacks that kind of star star power up front. Yeah, so, years past. yeah, like I agree with you about the shortstop position. I mean, Ed Howard is a guy that we obviously know really well just from like kind of being in our backyard, but he's not even the typical top high school shortstop that would, you know, be like a top five pick usually, which, which is kind of interesting. The drafts are generally college heavy at the top and hitters usually rise. Do you see the same thing happening at the top of this draft? I, I do. I, I'll, you'll see, I think hitters rise like, uh, Keston Hearstad out of Arkansas, like guys that, um, again, maybe ranked in the 15 to 20 range that when push comes to shove GMs and scouting directors are going to be drawn to that, that perception of safety around a college hitter, um, that they've been able to scout for three years. Got, they've got, they've been able to look at that guy, um, in wood bat leagues in the Cape and, and other collegiate summer leagues. So, as opposed to a high school kid, right. Where in many, many parts around the country, you haven't, they didn't have a high school season this year. So the last time they saw these guys was in the summer showcase circuit, which they, they got plenty of eyes on. They got scouting reports and numbers on them, but those typically have just been preliminary looks at kids where 
you're putting them into buckets. Like, Hey, I think this guy's a day one guy. I think this guy's a day two guy, a day three guy. Um, and that's how they prioritize how they're going to view that, that prospect in the spring. Well, for many of these guys, we didn't have a spring. So that's going to impact, I think when it comes down to it, pulling the trigger and paying $5 million on a high school kid that didn't get any at bats this spring. The last time you saw him was Jupiter in October versus a college guy where you've seen him, you've seen him in high school. You've seen him for three years in college, even if you weren't honed in and focused on drafting him and you've seen him in the summer leagues, um, you just have, you have more data on him. Uh, and I think, you know, when your job depends on it, you're going to see more people lean towards drafting that, that college guy. Now, now that's just my opinion. I've talked to scouts and I've talked to uh, college coaches who say if it were them, they would take that high upside guy because uh, again, one of these impacts of the draft and kind of the retraction of these minor league teams are there's going to be less short season teams. Uh, so you can take a guy with a lot of upside who might be a little bit more raw. I'm talking about a prep guy, prep kid. And then keep him on your complex and develop him there instead of sending him into short season ball and having him achieve failure at an early level for the first time in his life. So you could see you could see both sides of it. In my opinion, I think people are going to be a little bit more risk averse and, and take the college kids. Burke, we'll get to the White Sox here in a little bit, but I think my next question kind of relates to where they stand at pick 11 uh, in this draft. And I think a lot of the experts, at least from what I'm seeing, all the mocks are pretty consistent with the top three picks in Spencer Torkelson, Austin Martin, and Asa Lacey. Uh, but after that, it's sort of unique. Like we, I'm not sure how this draft is going to fall from four and you know up leading into the White Sox specifically. I, so I guess my question is, do you agree that the top three will remain that consistent uh, as, the, as the draft occurs on June 10th? And as a result... How do the subsequent picks play out, in your opinion, uh, as the White Sox prep for pick 11? So, I, you know, I feel pretty confident at this point, you know, a week out that, that Torkelson will go on. Um, Baltimore is a little bit of a wild card. I do, do think Martin would be the leading candidate there. But if it's Nick Gonzalez or Zach Veen, then that kind of throws things off from there. And I don't anticipate Lacey gets passed. The Marlins at, at three would be my guess. Um, and then, yeah, after that, before 11, things could go in a variety of ways. I've, I've seen a lot of scenarios where uh, Max Meyer goes very high. Max Meyer going ahead of, of Emerson Hancock out of Georgia, which is, you know, a year ago that would have been um, improbable. But Meyer pitched so well. Emerson Hancock didn't do anything to kind of uh, warrant a slide. He he was very good this spring. Uh, just Meyer and, and a lot of, and Lacey were were dominant. You know, Max Meyer uh, with a ninety mile per hour slider. It's the best slider that I've seen in the last twelve months. Combine that with a high nineties fastball. And but by the way, he's got a a usable changeup that he developed. So if a guy like Max Meyer were we're six four instead of six foot six one. I think we'd be talking about a potential one one candidate. Um, so it's just 
there there is uncertainty. I'm I'm not I don't have a good feel for picks um four, five through ten, eleven at this point. Um hope to get some more clarity around that. Just the, the unique thing for you know prospect writers like myself are at this point, you know, the high schools were playing state championship games and uh colleges were playing and regionals and super regionals. And we were seeing decision makers behind home plate when you would see a, a scouting director um, getting his last look at a guy like Nick Gonzalez, then you could tie players to teams right now. It's a lot of speculation and it's, you know, you're getting information from, from scouts and, and, and scouting directors. If you have those contacts, but they're keeping things pretty close to the vest as well. There's not a lot of changing information, players aren't making that kind of late season push with a, with a strong performance in the postseason. No one's played baseball since, since early March. So uh, it is what it is at this point. And it's just a matter of teams preferences and talking themselves in or out of those preferences. So considering the format where it stands in, in its limited capacity across five rounds this year, I mean, immediately this is going to influence all 30 teams this year, but it'll also carry over, we believe, over the next couple of seasons related to uh, the draft classes moving forward. I'm thinking, like, how does this directly impact those rebuilding teams over the next few seasons? Because obviously, you know, you're you're preparing for this moment across a season that's that's a failure, but then with these limitations, I, I guess things are thrown for a loop. So. Um, how does this impact those teams that are that are struggling at this point? So there's only so many ways you can bring talent into the system. So you have free agency, you have international free agency, and you have the draft. So when your draft is only five rounds, there's a lot riding on that. A bad draft, you know, sometimes we categorize bad drafts as you missed on your first two picks and it's a bad draft, even if you got two major leaguers out of it in rounds seven through 10. Now there's no seven through 10. Uh, so there's just a lot more stakes riding on these five picks for teams. Some teams don't even have five picks. So if you, if you miss on these guys, then you're in a lot of trouble later on. Uh, and those effects, you know, that won't affect you next year or the year after it'll be two, three, four years down the line when these guys should be contributing to your major league team. And they're not because you whiffed on these picks. Burke, the, you know, the White Sox, they've been rumored on a lot of the, the top prep players, you know, and I think some of that's coming out a little bit from Jim Callis and some others here, but analysts have consistently mocked college hitters there, I think based mostly on, you know, their, their recent history of taking college hitters and just taking college players in general since 2012. Sure. Uh, what, what strategy do you think makes the most sense for them? So, yeah, I mean, it, I don't want to say it's lazy to, to just – constantly link the White Sox to college players because, you know, you can look back and they haven't taken one since what it was. Courtney, Courtney Hawkins in 2012. They haven't yeah. taken, they haven't taken a high school pitcher in the first round since Chris Honnell in 2001. <laughs> so, so yeah, Courtney Hawkins backflipped his way into our hearts back in 2012 on MLB network. And you know, the results were disappointing. Um, Tim Anderson, the next year was a Juco guy. So it's easy for us to say they're going to take a, a college guy, but so is it a trend? It certainly is a trend. Does it mean the White Sox will take 
college kids this year and next year in the first round? Absolutely not. So it's just one of many data points. Now, if I could have seen their board last year or, or each year before that, and it's heavily weighted towards college kids, then you could say, yeah, they prefer college kids. But the bottom line is, I think the White Sox, like most other major league teams, are targeting good players. So this is a subjective business. Um, some kids might perceive college kids as having less risk because you have that that longer track record. But that, that's not necessarily um, it, it, a foolproof plan either. So we know... We know when you see these college kids, you have a longer history with them. You you have a, a sense for those intangibles, the work ethic, how he handles pressure. That a high you might not have that history with a high school kid. But you know, for for me, like I said, if I'm the White Sox, if I'm drafting for the White Sox, if I'm Mike Shirley, I'm I'm taking the best player available, and when push comes to shove, that best player available could potentially be, I might give a little bit of deference to a college kid because I have a longer history with him. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, you said that you didn't think it was fair to necessarily call it lazy. I do think some of it, like when you see Patrick Bailey linked to them, you know, I think like analytics departments might like Patrick Bailey, but one of the things they've shied away from is they don't take anybody that, that has been bad with wood bats. And he was pretty bad with wood over the summer. So that's mm -hmm. just like one of the things where like, you know, I think if like a Reed Detmers like falls to them or like Max Meyer, God forbid, got down, I think that's what they'll do. But I, I, you know, I think high school players are big time in their mix. And obviously like, you know, like scouting directors aren't going to tell you the truth all the time, but you know, he surely spoke the other day, talked about high school players being firmly in their mix. I think, you know, I think Tyler Soderstrom's another realistic name. Mm -hmm. So is there, what do you think, I guess just for like the players that you scouted and something realistic, what's a realistic best case scenario for them at 11? So one thing, when I see that, when I see so many people linking Patrick Bailey to the White Sox, that tells me, well, someone might've tipped some information that they're, they are zeroing in on college hitters and maybe even college catchers. So that, that to me would say that Dylan Dingler out of Ohio state is in play. Um, when you talk about the strengths of Bailey, it's the catch and throw piece. You know, he's, like you mentioned, he he did struggle with Wood with the Collegiate National Team. I, I saw him each of the last two summers with the Collegiate National Team. Um, you know, the appeal there is that he's a switch hitter. Um, there was questions about the hit to out of high school, and he, he's been a pretty consistent performer at NC State uh, until the summer with the national team. He walked about as much as he struck out. Um, but it's, yeah, it's just he just doesn't have that huge hack uh, track record with wood bats. Um, so if the appeal is defensively, well, no one's better defensively behind the plate than Dylan Dingler. Um, Dylan Dingler has a seven arm. Uh, he's uber athletic. Uh, much has been said about he, he played most of his time as a freshman in center field. And that wasn't because he's a center fielder converted to catcher. Like he was a catcher in high school, just played center field for the Buckeyes because he was good enough to play center field. Then, then went back, behind home plate. Um, and then the offense um, did tick upwards this spring. Was never a bad hitter, um, but performed well in a short stint this spring. Could handle the bat. Now, Ohio State also has one of the, the nastier pitchers in, in the country in Seth Lonsway. Not, you know, he, he's like a date, uh, a second or third round talent, but I'm talking about him here because 
he strikes out 18 guys per nine innings. He also walks a guy in inning. He's he has a devastating curveball and he's very difficult to catch. And you need a guy like Dylan Dingler to prove that athleticism behind the plate. Uh, he moves exceptionally well, throws exceptionally well. So, you know, if we're just comparing if the White Sox or anyone want a hitter, or, or, sorry, a, a college hitter who plays catcher, Dylan Dingler for me would be in the mix if if uh, Patrick Bailey's in the mix. So that's one option. The other, I, I do think that Reed Detmers would be a big, a big opportunity here. So if you're looking at trends and you're looking at guys like Madrigal and Vaughn, guys that could move quickly and help you right away, Reed Detmers might be that guy from a pitching perspective. So he might not have the, the sexy stuff like Asa Lazy or Emerson Hancock, uh, but he can command it better than both of them. So I think he could pitch in a major league rotation right now. Um, and that sounds like hyperbole, and it usually is when you're talking about prospects that that are in college, but I think he's that advanced. He he has a fastball that won't blow you away, but the, the curveball is plus. It's really hard to square up, uh, and he could just locate his stuff better than better than his, his peers at this level. So I, I would say he's an option. Uh, and then when you talk about the high school kids, I think Ed Howard's in play here. Um, local kid. Um, you know, I, I don't really like comps unless they kind of come to me. And, and it might sound like a lazy comp, but I see it, I see him as a Tim Anderson starter kit. So he's a projectable, athletic, well-proportioned frame. 6'2", room to fill out. The, the first question you ask with any high school shortstop is, can he stick at the position? And with Howard, that's a resounding yes. Um, he has plenty of arm to make the throws. Uh, he ran a, a 6'7", 60, which is above average. I had him 4.19 down the line the last time I saw him, which is plus for a right-handed uh, hitter. Uh, he's got plus bat speed. Uh, ball comes off the bat hard. Um and then he and then he didn't he did not uh, participate in Jupiter or the Super Six, the local Chicago prep event, um, and that makes me wonder if he if he has kind of a pre draft deal in place with someone maybe under slot. Um, so pure speculation, but that could be a team like the White Sox uh, at eleven, local kid. Um, Again, pure speculation, but to me that would make a little bit of sense. And then, yeah, you've heard you've heard Tyler Soderstrom linked to him. High school catchers don't have a good track record. Um, it's a very difficult position to transition to in at the professional level. Um, he has the arm surely to stay to to stay a catcher, but it's a the receiving aspects of catching are difficult to transition from the high school to the professional level. And his bat's so advanced, I don't know if you would even want him to uh, slow down his development at the professional level and wait for him because of the glove. For me, I would I would move him to third or move him to the outfield right away and just let's not even pretend he's a catcher anymore. Um, and it could prove me wrong. Um, but for me, you're drafting him based on the value of the bat, let's not let the defensive development slow you down at all. So I do certainly think he, he could be in play there as well. That's a really good evaluation. I, you know, a lot of those names that you mentioned were on my mind and I was going to ask about them specifically. <laughs> um, so I'm glad you covered all of that. And the whole underslot idea is very fascinating because you mentioned earlier in the podcast, you know, the, the depth is laden with pitching, especially right-handed pitching. So, 
if the White Sox decide to go and pick outside maybe of where Ed Howard is ranked among consensus in the 15-20 range, and they, they take him at 11 and under slot, they can afford to use you know second, third, fourth, whatever they want to do uh, on pitching quality. So, I mean, that's a very interesting scenario that may come into play here. Also, mm-hmm. I think, uh, as you mentioned, Reed Detmer's, I would love to see Reed Detmer's fall to the White Sox, and if he's available, I think it's a no-brainer to grab him. Uh, but, you know, overall, it's one of those things that we continue to speak about is the uniqueness of the first um, outside of the top three picks. Anything goes, and the White Sox are in a position where I think they can adjust to where the board falls to them, uh, which is really fun to follow. So really good stuff on those evaluations. Uh, I want to take you back to last year's draft now because you had a little experience with Andrew Vaughn and Matthew Thompson. Could you give us a couple of scouting reports on those two players? Yeah, for Vaughn. So for for two years, um, his sophomore and junior year, he was the the most dangerous, one of the most dangerous hitters in college baseball. Adley Rutschman kind of passed them by uh, last year. I did get the chance to see him uh, for two straight summers. He played for the collegiate national team. So once as an underclassman and then once after winning the the Golden Spikes Award as a, a sophomore, um, he's got a chance to be a plus hitter with plus power. So uh, you'll take that as a as a staple in your major league lineup in the middle of your major league lineup for a long time. So there's not a lot of wasted movement in the swing. Um, he does have a little bit of a leg kick, but the, the hands stay, stay pretty steady. Uh, he's got natural loft in the swing. Uh, and there's a combination of, of bat speed and sheer strength that allows him to really drive the ball deep to all fields. So when you pair that with advanced feel for the strike zone, there's a lot to be extri- uh, excited about. Um, I think he's got all the tools to move quickly through the system. So I think uh, Edwin's on like a one-year deal for them, right? And then it's conceivable that that Vaughn could be ready to split first base and and DH duties with Abreu as early as like opening day next year. And then then for Thompson, Thompson, we had Thompson ranked uh, 62nd coming into last season. Or sorry, in the draft. Um, So the White Sox got him a little before that. He was a well-known high school kid uh, for many years in Texas. Uh, he's tall, thin, uh, room to room to fill out as he matures. He's like 6'3", 6'4", 190 pounds. Uh, he's pretty balanced and flexible in his delivery. His delivery shows athleticism. He's got a fast arm. Uh, was thrown in the mid-90s when I saw him, uh, like 92 to 96, uh, in, the, in the high school playoffs uh, right before the draft last year. Uh, he's got a mid seventies curveball. Uh, that's a, that's a potential plus pitch with twelve six uh, break on it. Uh, uh, change up is a usable third pitch. Um, flashes average. Got late fade away from left handed hitters. And then I've heard he's since added a, a slider. So you got a four pitch guy uh, with that kind of frame uh, who's pumping mid mid nineties fastballs as a as an eighteen year old. There's a lot to be excited about. Yeah. So. You know, in round 16 last year, the White Sox selected local product DJ Gladney. Basically, you know, I heard a lot based on like a pre-draft workout that he did with the club and, you know, Mm -hmm. showed a lot of his power. He got 225K. Um, I know that you said you you have uh, seen him before. So what are your thoughts on Gladney? And then did you, the year prior, did you see Bryce Bush at all or no? I had seen Bryce Bush. Yeah. And and Bryce Bush... I saw him on the showcase circuit um, and I had heard from an area scout that 
Bryce Bush was the strongest kid in the area. So, because uh, he was a Michigan kid. And when he was saying that, he wasn't even talking about high school kids. He was talking about the, the strongest draft eligible kid in his area was Bryce Bush, who was at the time 17. And he's comparing him to, you know, 21 year old college juniors at the time. So that says something. But the consensus that this scout that I spoke with thought he was going to school for sure. Um, but yeah, with Bush and Gladney, I'm really going to miss these. These are the overslot day three deals that I'm really going to miss with this five round draft, because to me, that's, you know, that's where you get your value. Um, I didn't talk to anyone who, who thought Gladney was going to sign last year. Um, and it could just be, I was talking to the wrong people. So I saw him at, at PG national two summers ago in St. Pete. Um, I think he was a shortstop at the time, but you could kind of see that he was already growing out of that position pretty quickly. He was, he was pretty big and strong, like six, three, 200 pounds. His actions were a little stiff at shortstop already. So I think third base or even first base might be, you know, his ultimate home long-term, but the appeals is what he brings offensively. The ball jumps off the bat. Uh, it was a, it was a pretty pool heavy approach that I saw, but showed a lot of pop to that pull side. Um, he's got a real big load and, and leg kick. Uh, and maybe it's not a coincidence that, I saw he struck out a bunch in his first year of pro ball. So maybe that power comes at a price, but he was a guy who was pretty young for the class. He was only 17 when he was drafted and started pro ball. So some of those hiccups are, are to be expected. Yeah. So I, I actually interviewed um, both players, you know, Bush after last uh, two years ago and then Gladney last year, Bryce Bush was, was really interesting because he talked about how, he had told a lot of area scouts that he wanted to sign and he's, and he, he was very candid and he joked that he like, wasn't really asking for that much money. So he thought yeah. it was kind of humorous that he fell as far as he did. Cause I think he signed for like just under 300,000. Um, and, and I think what it came down to was like, you know, a lot of directors and decision makers weren't in to see him. And yeah. a lot of teams just like, you know, they're, they're just not going to spend 300,000 on a guy that their, their director hasn't seen the white, the white Sox, haven't really done that. Nick Hostetler told me that if, you know, his area scouts, if he can't trust his area scouts with, with 300,000, like they shouldn't be scouting for him. So, True. you know, I just think that was like a benefit that they, you know, they grabbed him and then Gladney. Um, I had heard kind of the same thing as you. I heard there were some teams that were upset that like the A's, I think specifically, and there were one other team that were just totally convinced that he was going to go to Eastern Kentucky. And all of a sudden, like the White Sox had a deal with him. So, right. You know, and hey, I mean, the White Sox did their homework and found out what the kid needed and they did it. So, you know, good for them. But yeah, I mean, that that was one that was like, it seemed a little early for a guy that they definitely weren't going to sign just based off how they've patterned their drafts. So once they took him, like I assumed they had a deal. But yeah, um, yeah that definitely like wasn't a guy that I anticipated signing. Yeah, and it's it's that legwork that's done by those area scouts. <laughs> Because in, in today's day and age, you know, everyone is known, right? Because they're showing up to these PG events, these these PBR events. They're not finding these diamonds in the rough like they were maybe in the 80s. Um, but, but it's those area scouts doing their homework and truly sitting down with the family, understanding uh, the needs of the family and the needs of the kid, the desires of the kid. And if he's going to go to school or if he's going to sign. So I'm, th that's really, honestly, one of the things I'm going to miss most about this draft is I think it's, you know, I, 
as we talked about earlier, I think you'll see some difference to some clubs will have difference to, to college kids. Others might go for the upside, but for the most part, we're going to see the top 160 kids based on talent drafted because you're not, you know, college, college seniors aren't going to be picked as $20,000 cost saving moves. Like we would see normally in rounds seven and eight, we're not going to have that. So it's just going to be guys based on talent, which is fine, but we're going to really miss out on those stories like Bryce Bush, like DJ Gladney um, and countless others that, that, I really feel like the story we're going to miss that this year and guys like Gladney would go to Eastern Kentucky and, you know, he might've performed, but it's really tough to get draft buzz out of Eastern Kentucky. So, um, you know, some of these guys might fall through the wayside. I think that's one of those aspects too, that makes the draft so interesting across 40 rounds, especially considering last year, for example, with the White Sox, the way they played it in their second and third rounds, they, they paid overslot value for those prep arms and then maneuvered their way through the rest of the draft in, in, a, in a pretty fun way in, in terms of following it as a fan. So I'm with you there and on top of the fact that, yeah, kids are missing out on opportunities here, which is the most important, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, Burke, really good stuff. Really enjoy this conversation. We'll leave you with this. What about Nick Madrigal? I can't help myself uh, without asking about Madrigal and his skill set because, you know, people are critical about Nick Madrigal and with the Sox taking him at four, of course, there's a spotlight on him, but how would you evaluate that player? He's a divisive player. And he was when, when we were evaluating for the 2018 draft as well. Um, So we ranked him eighth in that draft. Um, The pros, if, if you like Nick Madrigal, you point out that, well, he has the best bat-to-ball skills in that draft. He controls the barrel ex- exceptionally well. He's got above-average bat speed. He's a good defender at second base. He's instinctual. He's got soft hands, a quick exchange, and he has an extremely high baseball IQ, right? So those are the things you like about him. Um, and that's what, that's what I saw. If you didn't like him, you saw a guy who may be – Maybe you even concede all those points, but you say he's going to have so few extra base hits and he doesn't walk a ton that he really needs to hit for a high average to just have a decent OPS. And you really need a decent OPS if you're going to be an impact position player that you're going to take fourth overall. Um, So those are the, the two sides of the coin with Nick Madrigal. And I think both of those scenarios are kind of still in play. Like he's hitting 310 as a professional. He doesn't strike out. He doesn't walk a ton, but he also doesn't hit for a lot of extra base hits. So this is going to be a really interesting year for his development. If he plays, if we get to see him play. Um, But personally, I see him as, as an above average second baseman who can play in this league for a long time. I don't think we're going to be seeing him in the midsummer classic on the all-star team a lot. Um, I just think he's going to do enough good things to keep himself in the lineup. He, he's not at the prototype. There's not a lot of guys his size that are doing it in the major leagues. Um, so you kind of want to break the mold on a guy like Nick Magic. It's just because those bat-to-ball skills are so good that I think a guy of his size and strength or lack of strength can do it because I think he'll bar- barrel the ball enough. He's not going to have high exit velocity numbers. Uh, and he's not going to be driving balls into the gaps, 
but I think he's going to do enough to stay in a lineup. But that, you know, that's just me. Burke, great stuff. Thanks so much for jumping on the future Sox podcast uh, covers the Midwest for division one baseball.com and major league baseball draft prospects across the country for 2080 baseball. Burke, what do you have in the works now as the draft is upcoming on June 10th. What are you working on across your platforms that we can look forward to? Yeah, so we're myself and Nick Falaris at 2080 Baseball are, are in the process of painstakingly debating our top 125 players. And we, we take it very seriously. Um, even with the abbreviated spring, we've been able to see probably, and if I had to guess, either he or I or both of us have seen live 70% of the guys that will be drafted next week. So uh, with that experience becomes a lot of opinions that we have to flesh out on, on phone calls that, that go deep into the night. So we're working on our rankings right now. Um, and, uh, and we'll have a mock draft up early next week uh, and just look for, look for draft content early next week, leading up to the draft on 2080 baseball. Awesome. Burke will do. Thanks so much for jumping on our podcast. All right. Thank you guys. Appreciate it. Had fun. Thanks. You can follow Burke Granger on Twitter at Burke Granger. My name is Mike Rankin for James Fox and 2080 Baseballs as well as Division I Baseballs. Burke Granger, thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Future Stock Podcast. You can check us out on iTunes, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your podcasts. We really appreciate your support. We'll talk to you all next time.